Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. So take your Bibles with you and open to Hebrews chapter 1. If this is your very first day at Calvary Chapel Aurora, we we go through the Bible together as we have for 18 years. We study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the books of the Bible, which ultimately will get us through the entirety of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And the last New Testament book that we have yet to study as a church is this book of Hebrews. So we just started it. Uh, If you've never studied a book of the Bible from chapter 1, verse 1 to the very end, then then you are still in the early stages. You can go back to our app or on our website and you can grab the studies and just catch up with us as we've had a couple of introductory studies because we ought to know who the book was written to, what the purpose is, the background of the book. And then last week, we focused on, as we turned the corner to verse 4, we really looked at these mysterious creatures that are known as angels. And if you weren't with us, we learned so much about how fascinating they are. And we only did a, you know, a 40-minute Bible study, but I mean, there are books and theologies written on angels. And it thought, you know, this week with all the events of Billy Graham graduating into heaven, one of the best books on the topic of angels was actually written by Billy Graham. And so if you're looking for, if angels fascinate you and you're looking for a biblical theology on angels, just go to Amazon. They probably have it in the used book section, uh, maybe even in the new. It's just called Angels by Billy Graham and fascinating on the insights that the Bible gives us. So we spent some time last week uh, looking at angels and now for the rest of the chapter, the theme of chapter one in Hebrews is Jesus is greater or more superior or better than the angels. And you ask, why would that even be an issue? Why would we need to learn that Jesus is greater than the angels? Well, remember, Hebrews, the book, was written to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century that were being tempted to leave the simplicity of their relationship with Jesus and go back to the religious system of Judaism. What we would refer to today, the kind of language we would use today is they would leave, they, it would be like them leaving this church and going back to following the law. And they don't want grace anymore. They want to go back to following the law, which really in many ways, as you'll see in Hebrews, doesn't make sense because if you go back to following the law, the law is pointing to the coming of Messiah. The law is pointing to the fulfillment. The law is pointing to grace and a new covenant. So to leave the new covenant, to go back to the old covenant, puts you in a place of hoping for the new covenant again. So it doesn't make any sense. And that's really the essence of the author to the Hebrews as he writes this. He's, he's laying out point by point by point, both in encouragement and in warning. And the issue with angels in the mind of a New Testament believer, remember, the Bible categorizes people into two people groups, really, Gentiles and Jews. Most everyone in this room, would, and listening in, especially in the Western culture, would be considered Gentiles. Now, there might be a few of you that have a Jewish origin and you are Jewish, but for most of us, we are Gentiles. But a careful reading of the scriptures, you'll recall in the book of Acts that most of the early church was Jewish. Why? Because where did the church begin? In Israel, 
Where, where was the gospel preached? But in Jerusalem. Jesus himself was a Jewish man. And so most of the believers in the early church were Jewish. And they had with them all of the baggage of Judaism that they would bring in. And remember, the, one of the biggest first fights in the early church, remember, was in Acts chapter 15. What was it? When Gentiles started getting saved, there was the question, should we circumcise them? And they argued over it in Acts 15. And praise God that faith won out. And that circumcision, as the Bible teaches, is not necessary to be saved. Can anybody get an amen? Is anybody happy about that? Like I, I'm happy about that. It's not necessary. It's by faith. It's by faith. And so now when you, when you think of this in the book of Hebrews, just understand they're wrestling with this tension between their freedom they have in Christ and religion. Now, most of us are not tempted to go back to Judaism. However, I have to say, and you know this to be true, there are many temptations in your life to leave your simple faith in Jesus Christ and go do something else, go worship something else. I mean, you think of the temptations just in our culture. We could talk about cultural temptations. There's always the temptation of money, success. There is the temptation of wanting to make a name for yourself. Uh, there's the temptation of sexual sin, uh, the party lifestyle. There's the temptation of pornography. There's the temptation, like there are a lot of things that even if I mention them today, that you're involved in them, you have left the simplicity of your faith in Jesus Christ. It, they are the things that you would choose over and above Jesus simply will not get you where you really want to go. It actually is going backwards. And so while you may not be so caught up and you, know, you listen to the Bible today and you go, well, I'm not tempted with angels. I, I accept that. I, I agree with you. But what are you tempted with? What is it that's so important to you? That maybe in a religious, let's think of it in a religious context. One of the most popular religions today is Roman Catholicism. And many of you came from a Roman Catholic background. You have stepped out of Roman Catholicism in that religious system to a simple faith in Jesus Christ. But what did that do? That put you at odds with your family. That put you at odds the way you were raised. That put, see, following the Bible and what it says has this sense of putting you at odds with all of your past. And you know, over time, it's frustrating. You're like, I don't know, my parents don't talk to me anymore. We argue now. And, and what about, I, I, I miss the feelings and the smells. And I, I miss the, all of the trappings of Roman Catholicism. And, and maybe I should just go back to it. And the answer is no. God gave you the simplicity of Jesus Christ where you don't follow man anymore. And you don't follow religion. You have a personal, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the background to the people listening to this letter. And why is angels such a big deal? Well, simply, the Jewish people very much respect Moses, and the Jewish people in Judaism very much respect the law. And the Bible says that in the giving of the law from God to man, angels were involved. So those are three very important things in the Jewish heart. The law, Moses, and angels. And so chapter one, the author Paul, I believe, says, look, Jesus is far superior than the angels. Now, for many of you, this is going to be, there, there's going to be no aha moments in these, in these Bible studies. They're just going to be, of course, you're, you, you're probably going to find at the end, of course, of course, of course. But whenever we come to Bible study times like this, where you already know the information, although I'm going to give you some new things that will help you, 
but you already know the things. Don't just dismiss Bible study. Well, I already know that. I already know that. I already know that. Because things that we already know, we need to continually be reminded of. We need to remember, look, angels, as fascinating as they are, they're not better than Jesus. So don't exchange your faith in Jesus Christ to chase after angels, to chase after the spiritual realm, to chase after miracles, and all the things that might take the place of a simple, abiding, obedient relationship with Jesus Christ. He's enough. Okay, so with all that in mind, think of this. Pick up with me in verse 4. There are three things I want to show you today, and in the next few studies, there are going to be eight total eight reasons why Jesus is greater than the angels. So in verse four, having become, well, let's go back to verse one, just for the sake of uh, the beginning of the chapter. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Who, verse three, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For which, excuse me, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So beginning in verse 4, I want to address this phrase that's tripped up folks for a while, and it's that phrase in verse 4, having become so much better. Because the Bible teaches, and we believe, that Jesus Christ is eternal. He is the eternal Son of God. He is uncreated. Why? Because he is God. But we come to English phrases like this. Now remember, the Bible can only communicate in the language that we understand. For us, it's English today. And using the English language, when the phrase having become so much better, we immediately look at the tense of that verb and think, well, wait a minute. Was there ever a time when Jesus wasn't much better? Now, the answer to that biblically is no, there was never a time in all of human history for all of eternity that Jesus was less than the angels, but the author is making a point to us and drawing us to a point in time that it was verified and validated for all humanity. Jot it down in John chapter 1, verse 14. This is the point in time. Because this phrase, having become so much better, is the same tense and the same grammar used in John chapter 1, verse 14. Let me read it to you. John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, describing Jesus, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There was a point in human history where the eternal Son of God became a man. Where did that happen? In the womb of a young girl named Mary. The technical Bible word for that that we refer to is that was the incarnation where God became man. And this is a miraculous thing because God becoming man, Jesus did not lose his deity. He didn't lose being God, but rather took on a human nature to come to our level to live a a perfect life and to die 
and rise again for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. He came to solve the greatest problem, bridging the gap between man and God. So that when we come back to verse four, this is a reference to the incarnation. This is a moment in time where God became man and so much better than the angels, the incarnation. Now, notice a few things, because number one, if you're taking notes, the three, of the three points we have today, number one, how, why is Jesus greater than the angels? Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Or you can say Jesus ha- possesses deity. He's God. That's one reason. That, and again, isn't that, that's not really an aha moment. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Jesus is God. That puts him in a unique place. God spoke, notice in verse five, God spoke to Jesus, but not to angels. And he said some unique things. Jesus and Jesus alone, verse five, is the only begotten one. Verse six, again, he brings the firstborn into the world. That, that actually is a title of deity. Jesus is the only begotten son of God who is declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Jot it down, Romans chapter one, verse four. Romans chapter one, verse four, that Jesus is declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is God. Now, I wanna teach you something, it's very important, because this phrase, turn over to Colossians chapter one. I wanna add a phrase to you. We're gonna turn the page a few times, so whether you're flipping on your phone or not, you've gotta learn this, because I wanna equip you for those door knockers that come to your door on Saturday mornings. I don't want you ever, ever to be confused or tripped up by them because they are trained to come to your door on Saturday mornings and confuse you. They they are trained to find an area of theology where they can trip you up and make you feel like you don't know what you believe. And it's in that feeling that what we refer to as cultists, that feeling is that they, they gain a little bit of your trust as if they know what they're talking about. Let me just say this. Those that come to your door on Saturday morning and bring to you a false gospel and bring to you a false teaching really don't know the Bible. They only know what they were taught to trip you up. And I can show you a few things. One I'm gonna show you today. I'm gonna give it to you and then I'm gonna quiz you on it. And then maybe in the future I'm gonna do a pop quiz and make sure that you guys understand this because they will use these phrases, begotten and firstborn, to claim falsely that Jesus is created. And they're taking the full weight of simply the English translations. For example, when they use the phrase begotten, they're using the phrase in such a way like you and I experience where our parents gave, our mothers gave birth to us. Or you as, par- as moms, you gave birth. You, you, you know, we don't use the phrase today, but it's a Bible word. You, you gave birth to your child so that your child is begotten of you. And they only use that phrase begotten in a physical way. And so they say, well, wait a minute. It says Jesus was born. He was created. Same with firstborn. Now, if you're not careful, you'll use the phrase the same way. When you think of firstborn, no doubt, if you have multiple kids in your, in your home, you'll refer to the oldest as what? Firstborn. I mean, that's, that's natural, and that's an okay use of that. And it simply re- refers to, in the physical, it simply refers to the first in your family that's born. But when it's used in the Bible, it's not always used that way. 
And one of the ways that it's not used is when it refers to Jesus Christ. When this word is used to refer to Jesus Christ, it is not speaking of birth order. But rather, you can circle the word, if you have Hebrews and Colossians open together, you can circle the word and you can write next to it preeminent or first in priority, not necessarily first created, like you refer to your kids. You know, Marie and I have three children, we refer to Eddie as our firstborn. And when we mean that, we use the first one created. But that's not the word that's being used to describe Jesus Christ. It's not a, or, it's not a point in time of created. This is not a word of chronology when it refers to Jesus, but one of priority. And you see it again in Colossians chapter one, verse 15. It's another place they will take you. They'll take you to Hebrews and they'll take you to Colossians one and they'll say, well, it says right here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And what they will say, primarily to Jehovah Witnesses, they will come and say that this is a verse that says that Jesus was born first, created first over all creation. It doesn't mean that. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Let me show you. This word doesn't always refer to physically created beings firstborn. And so whenever you were studying the Bible, context is everything. So that they take you to Colossians and say, well, look at this. Jesus is created. And you go, well, show me in the Bible where that is. So they open up their Bible, which, by the way, is falsely translated in many places. But they open it up and say, well, right here, Colossians chapter 1 says that he's the firstborn of all creation. And so your response to them is, so you're saying that word means he was born first, he was created first. Yes, that's exactly what it means. And so you would say next. That means everywhere this word is used in the Bible refers to born first and created first, right? Well, of course it does, they will say. Why? Because they don't know their Bibles. So Jeremiah chapter 31, let me show you. This one verse will blow them out of the water. This one truth, because it is true. This one place in Jeremiah chapter 31, I want you to notice with me verse 9. Jeremiah 31 verse 9. So this is where you put little marks in your Bible. That's why the iPad and everything, all the, tech, all the digital things don't help too much because they're hard to take notes in. This is where you make your own cross-references in your own paper Bible and you use them at your doorstep because you need to know your Bible. You are in a church that teaches the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. You're in a church that if you have a Bible question and you know where the address is, like you have a Bible question on this book of the Bible, that book of the Bible, you can actually go to our website, I taught on it most likely, to answer that question in a Bible study. Like you and I, we should know our Bibles. We should know just the very basic, simple, foundational truths of our Bibles so that when a, when a cultist comes that's been specifically trained to confuse you. And let me just say, has anyone ever felt confused talking to someone about the Bible? Yes or no? Yes. I mean, a cult of suspect. Listen, I've been reading the Bible and studying the Bible. This is my life for the last 27 plus years. That's been my life. And I still get flustered. There are times where I still get flustered where either, you know, I'm tired or I'm not tracking. And then, you know, one of those times where you, you're, they're on their door and you're just like, hey, look, you know, eventually if you get all flustered, here's your answer. If you get all flustered at your front door and, and just to avoid being confused, just say, you know what? I love Jesus. I, I, I may not understand all your confusing things right now, but I love Jesus. Leave. And then just close the door. You go, how can you do that? Because they're cultists trying to rip you off. Like if somebody came to your door and said, can I steal your TV? Oh, come on in, steal my TV. Take my computer too. And here's a glass of milk on your way. No, no, you don't do that. 
And so it's okay if you feel flustered because, you know, many times you feel flustered and about a half hour later the answer comes. And you're like, it's too late. It's too late. You can't chase them down the street. I mean, I guess you could. We did that for many years. We'd follow them down the street until they left our block. And we'd just go right up behind them. I remember one time in California, I had, I think Eddie, I had Eddie with me, and we were driving down the street, and I just felt in one of those moods that morning, and I saw them on a, uh, we were getting donuts or something, and you know, my kids just, just want to go home and eat the donuts, but I'm like, no, no, let's leave the donuts in the back seat, and let's go follow them. And we did, and they got very mad. You know, that's not the most effective way. Um, but it was fun in the moment. So if somebody comes to your door and says, Jesus was created, and you say, no way. Show me, prove to me. Put them on, put it back on them. They open up to Colossians 1.15. They open up to Hebrews chapter 1, and they go, well, it says right here. And, and so you're saying, hey, firstborn always means first created? Yes, always in the Bible it means first created. You say, really? Well, let's take and go over to Jeremiah 31, verse 9. Let's read it together. Jeremiah 31, verse 9. It says, they shall come with weeping, and, they, and with supplications I'll lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. Because I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my, what does your Bible say? Firstborn. Ephraim is my firstborn. Can I ask you a question? Was Ephraim born first, yes or no? No, for you Bible students, who was born first? Anybody say, yell it loud. Manasseh. Jot it down. It's just simple truth. Just as you read your Bible, it's very simple. Manasseh was born first. So if we're using the word firstborn, it goes to Manasseh, not to Ephraim. But God is making a point here. God is making a point to us that he appoints and ordains this idea of priority. It's priority. Ephraim has a more important place than Manasseh. Jesus, when he's referred to firstborn, isn't saying he's created. He is preeminent. He's preeminent. So let's go through the quiz. You ready? Pop quiz. Was Jesus created? Yes or no? no? No. And so where would you take somebody to show them that firstborn does not refer to, to order of birth? Jeremiah 31. What verse? Nine. So we get to Jeremiah 31, nine, and you read it to someone and it says, hey, look, look, Ephraim, Ephraim is my firstborn. Is Ephraim firstborn? Who's firstborn? Bam. Everybody gets an A+. Plus. Everybody gets an A+. Plus. <laughs> it just struck me recently in a couple weeks. Check this out. This, this punk from Southern California, me, I'm speaking to me, not you, me, <laughs> that barely made it out of high school, barely made it out of high school, barely graduated, got my little certificate, took me 15 years to finally finish my associate's degree in theology after 15 years of pastoring a church. I finally got my little certificate on the wall that says I'm a, I'm a, I'm a degreed person. I have my little associate's degree right there on my wall. I'm going to California in two weeks and actually teaching a class at Bible college. Only God could do something like that. Like this guy that can barely, is barely educated himself, although like I'm a student because my, wa my, my wife, not my wife, it's not her fault. My life was so backwards, God 
I just share that. It just came to me right now. It didn't come to me last night, but I just share that because maybe some of you, you kind of look at your life. It's backwards. It's not the way you want it to go. Listen, God has a will and a purpose for you. You stay close to him. You follow him, and he will do things in your life that will shock you. And so now the leaders, the, those that are the leaders of the Calvary Chapel Bible College in California invited me to teach us class. And you can just pray for me. It's in a couple weeks. It'll be Monday through Thursday. And, and I'll be, and, and what a joy. This is what I get to do. I get to take 30 or 40 kids and teach them about the gifts of the Spirit so that by the end of the class, then not only will they know their gifts, but we, have been, we would have been worshiping together so much that they'll be able to exercise their gifts and be able to tell someone else and walk them through the whole thing, just like we did here. We've done it twice here as a church. So if you weren't here for the spiritual gift study, you can go to Romans or you can go to the book of John up on the website and there are all of the gifts, the seven primary gifts. But it just reminded me as I took you, I'm gonna get to give grades, that's gonna be great. So I give all you guys A++, all of you, and then we'll pop quiz you at some time just so you know, you don't have to be confused by the cultists at the door. The Bible is understandable. You have the spirit of God living in you. Even if somebody confuses you, the Bible says what it says, not what someone says it says. And you can just read it and let it speak for itself. All right, you guys with me? All right, we got two more points and just a few more minutes. But Jesus is deity. He's greater than the angels because he's deity. He's preeminent. He's first in rank and order. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He deserves all of our worship and all of our attention. The Bible speaks louder and clearer than any false teaching. Now notice, back in Hebrews with me, come back in chapter 1. In verse 4, it speaks of him having a name. You see that phrase, more excellent name? Well, the Bible says that in the end times, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before that Jesus, before the name, before the name always refers to the essence of a person. In Acts chapter 4, if you're taking notes, verse 12 says, There is salvation in the nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, it says that far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, the name of Jesus. He's far greater. He's far greater than any other name. Now, you know, we looked a little bit last week because some angels are named. We, we, we learn about Michael, the archangel. We learned about Gabriel. They have names. But no angelic name can compare to the name of the Son of God. There's no angelic name that compares. He has a most excellent name. His name and the essence of it. He's not merely mighty like Michael. He's almighty. He's not just a messenger like Gabriel. He himself is the word. And remember, there's another angel out there. His name is Lucifer. Actually, the name given to the devil, did you know that there are over 40 names associated with that rascal? 40 names. They're all bad. The one that I've been thinking about this week was, and maybe this will be relevant to you, but one of the names that is given to the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Have you been accused this week? Anybody be falsely accused? Anybody been accused of stuff that isn't true? Let you know right now that that accusation came from the very pit of hell, not just the person involved. There's a spiritual dynamic to even the accusations that come your way. And so what do we do? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's a spiritual battle that you're in. 
Jesus' name is far greater than any name of any angel. Now, number two. Number two. Why is Jesus superior to angels? Number one, he's God. Number two, he has a unique father-son relationship. He has a unique relationship. Again, in verse five, he says at the end, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And this is all the question, to what angels did God ever say that to? The answer, none. Only Jesus has this unique relationship. I will be to him a father. The kind of relationship that when Jesus is being baptized from heaven, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The announcement from heaven. Jesus is superior. He has this relationship. Now, you'll notice in your Bibles that these verses are in italics because they're quotes from the Old Testament. So what Paul's doing is using the Old Testament to affirm. Those that want to go back to the Old Testament, the author's saying, look, I'll use the Old Testament to prove my point and to show you that you're missing something wanting to go back to religion. And so he quotes here in 2 Samuel. This is a direct quote, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jesus alone stands as the only mediator between God and man. The only God has only one and, per, on, one and only one perfect, obedient son. That, to Jesus, that, that through Jesus being sent into the world to secure our perfection and righteousness by faith. He and he alone, not the angels, provide the way to the Father. Jesus said that very directly in John chapter 14, verse 6. He couldn't have been clearer. There's not two ways. There aren't two ways or four ways or six ways to be right with God. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not a pastor. That's not a pope, not a priest, not a church, not a movement. Only Jesus. The only mediator. Not Mary, not the rosary, nothing. No one but Jesus. You don't need to go into anyone to get to Jesus. He's made himself available, how? By the incarnation. And you'll see how this all packed together of what power these truths are. So many people come to Hebrews and they focus on the difficult passages. And there are a couple, we'll get to them. But most of it's very simple and easy to understand and very relevant to our life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For he made him, speaking of Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You're in Hebrews. Turn over to chapter 5. This is great. We'll get here and unpack this uh, later, but check this verse out. It's so powerful. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. It's speaking of Jesus. It says, Though he was a son... Yet he learned obedience, how? By the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Listen, there's just some things you're not going to learn in life without suffering. Suffering teaches us obedience. Trials and tribulations teach us obedience. And so the desire for comfort and ease and easy life actually is taking you away from learning obedience. And you go, wait a minute, Ed, why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to go through pain? Can't I just read a book on obedience and learn obedience that way? Listen, read a book on obedience, but you won't learn it until you suffer. 
I mean, Ed, can't you just teach an eight-part study on trials and tribulations? As a matter of fact, we just finished one. So yes, you can listen to all the studies, but you won't learn obedience until you suffer. Suffering is the primary tool that God uses to teach you and me obedience. And you say, how? Well, listen, through the midst of trials, tribulations, and suffering, you and I, we get to a place where we realize our resources are inadequate. You don't have enough money to get out of this jam. You don't have enough wisdom to get out of this. You don't have enough strength to get out of this. You realize you have no power. You are where you are. It could be your bad decisions that got you there. It could be the bad decisions of someone else that got you there. But the reason why you're suffering and the reason why you're trying, try, why the trial is there and reason why things are in so upheaval in your life is to teach you obedience. Where else will you turn? Now, you can choose not to obey in the midst of trials, as we have done so many times before, but the lesson will be repeated over and over, won't it? You know, people that disobey God in the midst of him drawing them to obedience, we have, you know, you, you, we, we refer to people like that, and, and we refer to ourselves, because I can't think of anyone listening in that hasn't gone down this path. You're in the midst of something. God's wanting you to do a work and you rebel instead of obey. You know what we call that? We call that, you're going to learn the hard way. Jot it down. You're taking notes? Go ahead. Jot it down. I'm going to learn the hard way. Because you're going to learn. God loves you. He dwells in you. You're going to learn this. You're either going to learn it the hard way or the easy way, but you're going to learn it. Or another phrase that we like to use to those that disobey when God calls for obedience, we say that they've been rolled in the school of hard knocks. Say it with me. The school of how many of you have a degree in that school? I'm working on my master's, my PhD of just God, what am I thinking? And so God allows, as we've learned so many times before, storms to come in our Sometimes he sends them our way. Sometimes he sends us out into the middle of one. Why? Because just like our savior, our captain, our champion, we learn obedience through suffering. And aren't we in that school? Jesus is greater than the angels because you learn nothing from the angels about obedience because they don't suffer. He has a unique relationship. A unique relationship. Now, angels, the final thing that we're going to learn today is found in verse 6. And that again, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Okay, pop quiz. Does firstborn mean created first? Not always. So this verse says that Jesus is created. Is that true? Yes or no? Well, where would you take me to prove that? Verse 9. So we jump over to Jeremiah 39. Verse, nine, verse 31. Oh, whatever. You know which one it is. I get a C so far. Patience. I'm going to erase that. All right. So we go to Jeremiah 31 verse 9. And it says, who is his firstborn? Ephraim. Is Ephraim born first? So that word definitely doesn't mean born first there. It's a spiritual thing. Who was born first? A plus plus. I get the C, you get the A. See, it's that easy. It's really not. You don't have to be flustered at your doorstep. Anyone, the, the error of every false teaching, it's the same error. I know they're all weird and out there and woohoo, some are really, you know, way out there. But the error is all the same. It's the same essence of error, and that is 
who is Jesus Christ. If you don't have the character and nature of who Jesus is, everything else will be wrong. Now, number three for our time today. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus is, has a unique relation, father-son relationship. And then finally, notice verse six. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So here's number three. Jesus is worshiped by the angels. He's greater because the angels worship him. Jesus doesn't worship angels. Why? Because he's God. Jesus, the firstborn, superior, priority, preeminent, most important, deserves all the glory, honor, and worship. The Father demands that the angels of the universe worship Jesus. Why are you going backwards and elevating angels above the simplicity of Jesus Christ? All the angels of the world worship him. And this is a quotation from Psalm 97, uh, that, that first part of it, where in the Septuagint version, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, and remember Jesus, when he was born, he was worshiped. The angels were worshiping there in Luke chapter 2. Remember when Jesus was resurrected and ascended, angels worshiped there in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. When Jesus returns in his second coming, who's he coming with but angels? And the angels worship. I mean, Jesus is the person who entered the world, God, as man to save us. He lived, he died, and rose again. He is worthy of our worship, our worship in every facet of our life. But you know, it reminded me in, in, in the context of, of this, this critical spirit that seems to have, have overtaken our society as of late. It just seems to be worse and worse where everyone seems to be a critic and wants to be a critic and where man's opinions are elevated over and above God's opinion of a matter and where with the stroke of a keystroke you can destroy someone with your opinion and with something going on Facebook, it's almost like you see it as invitation so that you can offer your opinion and your opinion, you become critics and, and with all the television shows, let's bring it down into something the Lord just put on my heart for us as a church this weekend. When you bring it down into a, a, a context of a church worship service, with all the television shows like American Idol and The Voice, it's kind of made us critics of music. And it's kind of made us critics of, well, you know, you might be here in a context of our church setting and you're just like, well, you know, um, you know the pastor uh, so-and-so missed that key on that keyboard. You know, it didn't hit the right note or they didn't sing the right note or it didn't sound like, or I don't like that song. And, I don't, and, and I'm like, listen, we need to follow the example of the angels and learn how to worship Jesus. When we're in full worship mode, whether it's song or Bible study, like, like an act of worship that you're engaged in right now, at least some of you are, is you are paying very close attention to the teaching of God's word. That's an act of worship. It's not an act of worship to be playing Angry Birds or some other thing on your phone right now or in your mind. You know, I remember some kids, some kids, I, I mean, I, I'm glad you're here, but I remember in the day, and this may still be happening, I don't see it now, but some kids, they would have, their parents would bring them and make them sit in, sit in class. It is kind of like a class today, but sit in church today, and, and they would have one little earbud up in their ear listening to some crazy rap music, and then the other ear, they're supposed to hear me. I, I'm not going to be able to overcome that nasty rap music that's in your ear, and that's that's not an act of worship. It's not an act of worship to have one thing in your ear and one thing that, well, yeah, maybe I'll just follow my mom and dad and I'll just do what they say. But in your other ear, you're listening to something crazy. That's not worship. It's not worship to be critical. It's not worship to, you know, for us as a church, this is something you have to realize because when you have things repetitive, 
you start to take them for granted. It happens in every facet of life. You take your spouse for granted, you take your kids for granted, you take your job for granted. You know, and what they say is true, isn't it? You don't know really what you have until you don't have it anymore. Same is true in the facet of our church life. You know, you've had, we've had the same worship leader now for over 10 years, Pastor Ian. He's been with us for 10 years. So if you do the math, you know, let's just say, just for the sake of math, three services a week for 10 years, that's 52, 52 weeks, so that's 520 weeks times three, 1,500 times, add another Wednesday to that, so that's another 500, so a couple thousand times, and then the, then the different times he leads worship as a staff, the different time he leads us in worship, all the times that, and, and you, you have, we have been blessed with a young man who's maturing in age over the years, with a young man who has a heart for God and is very talented in leading us in worship. It's not just like standing up here with a guitar. Like there are, there are many facets to, so the best thing that Ian can do for us is not make sure he hits the right note. It's not make sure he gets all the right keys and all that, although that's important. That's not the best thing he can do for us. The best thing he can do for us or anyone leading us on the stage, you know the best thing they can do for us is worship God. Because when they worship God, we use the phrase on purpose, they are worship leaders, or in his case, worship pastor, where he's shepherding us. And, and all we have, you see somebody up here worshiping and in, and, and in tune. When you're worshiping, you make mistakes. And you're worshiping, you do things that maybe you don't hit the right note or right key or who cares? But the real question is this, why are you so critical of everything? Well, what is that? Now, again, I'm not referring to any email, emails we got recently and I'm not isolating anyone. The Holy Spirit wants to bring this out in our church. He wants to make us more worshipful. He wants us not only in song, but in Bible study, but also in service. Oh, you're here for an hour and a half? Do you think an hour and a half of worship is enough for the week? Every day, moment by moment, by the moment you wake up to the moment you go down to your life is a life of worship. God has you where you are to impact the community that you're in, to share the gospel, to use your business, to use your car, to use your house, your condo. To, to everything about you is worship. But you're tested in times like this. You're tested. And, you know, we just start taking for granted for people. Like, we, these, these aren't, I know a lot of churches are doing this, but we don't and we won't. This isn't just a bunch of hired musicians up here who are perfect and, all, and they can put on a concert and they can hit all the notes and they can make it sound like the CD. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I don't want to sound like the CD. I want to have a room filled with worshipful people. My heart, pastor, I want to worship. I want to worship. I don't want to be so critical. He's, oh, man, why, why that song? Why not? What do you? I'll tell you right now. Why did Pastor Ian pick that song? You want to know why? Because he picked it. It's his responsibility. That's his role here. He doesn't send me a list and go, oh, Pastor Ed, can I? No, I trust him. Pick the songs you want to pick. And lead us in worship, man. That's what you're here for. I want to follow you. And so, you know, things pop up from time to time. You might be up on the screen, go, oh, you know, I don't, well, what about, they missed a letter, they missed a letter. Let me tell you how to fix that. You ready? You know, when they miss a letter or a word up here, whatever, those guys serve their hearts out back there. It's not just a worship team, it's a whole, they serve like crazy. So, so maybe there's a missed letter. You want to know how to solve it? Close your eyes. <laughs> and worship the Lord. Like the angels worship Jesus. The angels worship him. 
And I haven't read anywhere in the Bible where the angels say, well, you know what, uh, that wasn't right, and that wasn't it. You know, make a joyful noise for the Lord. You go, well, if I close my eyes, I won't know the words. You'll learn the words the more you sing the song. You know, grab it on, a, on iTunes, maybe get on, you know, however you get your music, and just start listening to the song, and you'll get it, and it'll get in your heart. But even if you have to close your eyes, you're like, man, I'm just, I've got a critical spirit this today, Lord, and I don't want to be all critical at church. I want to worship you. You close your eyes, you don't know the words. Just make it up. Everyone else does. Just make it up. You know how you sing songs and you're singing the words and you're like, then you find out what the words were and go, oh, <laughs> you still liked it. But I think, I mean, it just spoke to my heart this week. It just spoke to me that, that, man, God isn't looking for critical hearts. He's looking for worshipful hearts. And when the angels are in the presence of God, what does the Bible say in Isaiah? They're, they're declaring what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And yeah, maybe we're imperfect, but we are imperfect, we're never, we're not, in our worship service, you're new to Calvary or you're new in the last, just know, our goal is not to have a polished service. Our goal is just to gather together and worship Jesus. That's our goal. And you know, for the last 18 years, we've done that. It may not be the best and it may not be polished and it may not, but I don't really care because God accepts our worship and he accepts us as we are and he le- invites us into his presence and maybe you've come from a church where it's super polished and everything's in order. You know, that's, that's their responsibility. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to lead a group into the very presence of God and to be surrounded with men and women as we are that just love Jesus and will go with us. We're all worshipers. And so I don't know. I don't know if I, who I spoke to last night. I checked this morning. I didn't get any nasty emails from service last night. But usually people go, oh, were you talking to me? I guess so, because you email me. But it wasn't personal. It's not personal. I just know you can spend your whole life as a critic and miss out on life. Because what does criticism do? It doesn't help anything. And I mean, really, I know we kind of, I made a few jokes here so we could laugh on purpose because laughter helps us. But also I was taught if you get people laughing while their mouths are open, you can get the truth right down their throat. But (laughs) so there is a tech, see you're doing it again. So here I go. Um, you know, there, there are other things, and that is you can rise up church and serve. You can rise up. Maybe you are a person that's attention to detail. You can help in that area. Man, who knows? But you can use your gifts and talents for the kingdom of God. And, and, and the time we gather together can be a true worship experience so that when you leave here, you're strengthened, you're edified, you feel better, you're stronger, and you're ready to attack the world that's going to beat you down <laughs> from the second you walk out of the building. Like, this is a refuge. This is a place of worship. And you know what? Jesus is greater than the angels. Why? Because the angels worship him. And we would do well to follow the angels' example. Amen? So, Father, as we turn our hearts towards you and just thank you for the time that we've had together, you, you would be glorified, that you would have your way with us. And, um, you know, this last little bit uh, in the service, Lord, was fun. It was good, but <laughs> we don't want to be critics. We want to be worshipers. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And, and we want to have a, we, you know, thank you for the fun that you let us have along the way. Thank you for the laughter that you can share with us. Thank, thank you, God, that, that truly we do want to be transformed. We may fight it. We may be disobedient. But in our heart of hearts, the spirit part of us, we want to be obedient. We want to follow you. We want to live in victory. We want to experience the abundant life. So, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon this precious church? I love them so much. So privileged to serve them. Uh, So privileged to 
uh, be a part of what you're doing in this small little corner of our city, in this small little corner of our state, this small, even smaller little corner in our world. But small doesn't mean insignificant, and small doesn't mean unimportant. And so thank you for the significant, important work you're doing through our church today. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.